Bibles with you, I invite you to open up to Genesis chapter 6, please. Genesis chapter 6. Not that it hasn't been interesting up to this point, but uh, the text certainly gets a little more fascinating at this point. And we're going to be only looking at the first nine verses of Genesis chapter 6 this morning. And uh, we're going to learn a lot about the character of God and how He relates to us and how He relates to our thoughts and our actions and our behaviors and and all of that stuff. So if you have your Bibles open to Genesis chapter 6, read along with me as I start in verse 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and the daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any that they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His day shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Let's pray. Father, in these uh, short nine verses, it says an awful lot about us. It says a a whole lot about you. And so, Father, I pray that you um, have already tilled the soil of our hearts and the seeds that have been planted will grow into plants of faith today, Lord, as we look into the grief that is in your heart. And it's in Jesus' name that I ask this. Amen. So, we've all experienced it. But how do you feel when someone lets you down? Maybe you're disappointed. Maybe you're frustrated. Maybe there's even some anger and some betrayal there. You know, when we are let down, there's a whole host of emotions that go along with it. But the chief emotion is probably one that we wouldn't necessarily uh, put our finger on because it's unexpected. Disappointment often brings grief. Disappointment is not an emotion that we often think about with grief, but it makes sense when when we put it into those terms. There are expectations that we all have, and when those expectations are not met, or uh, maybe they even just crash and burn, we have grief. Maybe the dreams that we had for our lives or the plans that we have that, that, that fell uh, apart. Maybe it was the relationship that broke down. Uh, maybe it was those ideas that we had that would be such good ideas and they turned out to, to really not be good ideas at all. And today we're going to continue our journey through the book of, of Genesis and, and we are going to find really the biggest letdown 
in history. In the first two chapters, Moses has described for us uh, God's glory revealed in His creation. If you remember Psalm 19, it says that the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above the work of His hands. So when we look at the beauty of nature, when we look at everything that's out there, the complexity of creation is meant to be a reflection of God's goodness and His wonder and His beauty and His creativity and, and just His, His goodness. And in all that he created, chapter 1 tells us that it is called good. But it was nothing compared to his masterpiece, which are human beings. There's no object, there's no creature in all, creature in all of creation that compares to his work in human beings. Humans are the only uh, part of creation that God has made in His image to reflect Him. He created them to be perfect in, in, in moral stature and created them to be in perfect fellowship with Him, a great relationship with Him. He created man and woman to be established in, in marriage, to be only between a man and a woman. And when He did this, He didn't just call it good, but the text says that He called it very good. He had this high anticipation for the goodness of His creation that was to come. But then something happened. Whereas humans were to be morally upright and obedient to God's Word, they disappointed God by rebelling against what He had uh, told them to do, and they started acting under their own judgment and under their own authority. In chapters 3 through 5 then, we've noted that uh, many of these sins that came as a result of what Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden. We've seen both God's judgment, and on the other hand, we've seen His grace. But for the most part, when we read this, it's just sort of like reading the morning news. But in our passage today, we see a different side of the story. We see the full extent of the wickedness of man. But for the first time, we actually read of how God feels about it. How does God emotionally respond to it? Sin has consequences. It will always hurt someone whether it's the smallest, most private sin in our minds, or whether it is uh, the biggest uh, scale uh, crime that is going on on our uh, court TVs and in our culture today, sin has painful consequences. And today that we find that it has uh, an even bigger consequence that we don't often see, that it grieves God to the heart so much so that he regrets creating people. And in response, he plans to order justice. But even in his regret, there is compassion. And he provides a way in which his people can be saved from judgment. And so this morning, the first thing that we need to do together today is that we need to observe how our sin affects God. Observe how our sin affects God. When we approach chapter 6, it, it's, it's really easy to get caught up in some of the details because there are some strange things that are going on in chapter 6. 
When we read in verses 1 through 4, we see these terms, the, the sons of God and the daughters of man, and we see uh, the Nephilim, and we see these, these mighty men, and we often think, what in the world is God talking about? And so we focus on these things rather than the overall point of what God is going to tell us here. And so I'm going to leave you in just a little bit of suspense today. I'm not going to tell you who I think the sons of man are or the uh, sons of God and the daughters of man. And I'm not going to tell you what I think the opinion is because commenters are all over the board on that. I do have opinions. And if you want to come talk to me or Pastor Dave, we'd love to have that conversation. But we don't want to get distracted from the point that God is grieved over our sin regardless of who the Nephilim are. And the controversy is only secondary to the emotional response of God. Chapter 3 introduces the sin uh, in which Eve is tempted by the serpent, and she, she takes of the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, and sin enters the world. Chapters 4 and 5, it, it gets complicated. They, they show how deep and how pervasive and how destructive it is in our lives. And now in chapter 6, it's going to describe the final events that lead up to God's greatest act of judgment in all of Scripture except for the crucifixion of Jesus in that of a worldwide flood. In chapter 3, notice some of the things that we've seen so far. We've seen how Eve has disobeyed God's Word. We've seen how her husband Adam, who instead of leading her in righteousness and, and helping uh, guide uh, the future family into the ways of God. He is, he is being passive here and watches her in this act and passively enters into it with her. And also remember that when God confronted Adam in chapter 3, uh, Adam passes the buck and he doesn't take responsibility for it. And so when he goes up to Eve, she does the exact same thing. She blames someone else and, and claims that she is simply just a victim of all these things that are going on. She, um, chapter 4, then, we find the first murder. Cain murders Abel because God accepts his sacrifice over Cain's. Cain is banished away from a land, away from his family, away from his livelihood, and essentially his life is over, and his descendants, we see how wicked they are, his descendants would murder others just like him. They would engage in polygamy, and they would, uh, they would have all, a whole host of sins that would be grievous to God. And chapter 5 doesn't necessarily show us the details of sin, but it does show us the result. Uh, one thing that we should always notice from last week is to see that in chapter 5, the repeated idea that they would name someone, tell how long they lived, and the fact that they died. If you're a person who likes to highlight or underline in your Bible, that would be a great thing in Genesis chapter 5, is to mark the repetition of what happens there. This person lived for however long, and then he died, and so on and so forth. Now in chapter 6, we, we move away from the result and detail how bad it got. Well, in chapter 6, we're dealing essentially with sexual domination and violence. Look with me in, in verse 2. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any that they chose. Now, Alan Ross, in his commentary, 
looks at these verses, and he's not seeing it as if these are just some guys that are just hanging out and find these women attractive, and they want to uh, have a marriage. Rather, he says that these are people who are lusty, powerful people striving for fame and fertility. This isn't just primitive tinder that's going on here. These are people with a purpose and a point of sexual domination and violence. And you can see the language in verse 2. They took any. It isn't as if they're going up to Rosie's father and saying, Oh, Rosie's dad, I love your daughter so much. Can I please have her hand in marriage? They don't care about the father. They don't care about her. All they want is what they want, and they will do anything, including violence, to take these women as their own. This is a kidnapping. It's a forceful theft of a human. It points to marriages that were not consent, consensual on the part of the female or of her family. And also, there's a hint of polygamy here. Notice that, uh, uh, remember that polygamy is already not foreign to what, what's going on here in the biblical record. Already the sons of Lamech on Cain's side are committing polygamy, and the language says that they didn't just steal a wife for their benefit, but rather they're taking any wives as they, would, they, they feel that they want. Now look in verse 4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now, these mighty men, when you look throughout the Bible and see this idea, this is the idea that they are men of war. These are the tough guys that, that the world would face at this point. David had mighty men. These are men who are, who are great fighters, great warriors, and here we see the same term. They're mighty men of violence. They are famous for it, which points to the fact that, uh, that even in Moses' day, the people that he's writing to in the book of Genesis are familiar with this term. They've heard of these people. They've heard of the sons of the Nephilim. But now... Um, notice how God sees things. Look in verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now notice the first part of that. It says the wickedness of man and it points to the behavior of human beings, how they act, what they do. And when we look at this, it would be easy as, for us to just say that God is just simply talking about our actions. That if we just avoid these bad things, if we just don't do them, then somehow He'll look on with us in favor. But the text goes on to say that every intention of the thoughts of His heart was evil continually. This points to the fact that God just doesn't see our actions but he sees our heart. He sees our motivations. He sees our inner thought life. He cuts to the place that displays why we say what we do and why we do what we do. So regardless, if we keep ourselves squeaky clean on the outside, God still sees what's going on in our heart. 
And take a look at God's response in verse 6. The Lord regretted that he made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. It grieved him. Now, that's a strong word for anyone who has ever experienced grief in your life. You understand what this is talking about here. You understand the feelings that go with this. God is heartbroken. It's like the father or a mother of of a rebellious child watching them leave their house and doing all sorts of things that they know is destructive in their lives. It grieves him. It hurts him to his heart. Remember that the heart is the core of who we are. And here it is grieving God to his very, the core of his inner being. He is looking out at what is going on in these chapters. And his heart aches. Now, God hasn't changed. The Bible says that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, which tells me that God's heart is breaking still every single day over us just as much as it was in Genesis 6. He looks out and he sees murder and he sees abortion and he sees poverty and he sees injustice and and he sees whatever it is at that time. But the thing is, though, that we often only think about those big cultural issues, those things that are out there. We want to see that God is grieved over the way our nation is going. We want to to know that God is grieved over such things like the New York abortion law that that is going on right now. We, we, We want to see that God is broken over injustice, that God is broken over human trafficking, That God is grieved over the general sins of our culture. But in this verse, God's talking to you individually. And he's talking to me individually. And his heart breaks for for you. Even in those, those, those teeny tiny sins, whether it be that, that white lie that you told your spouse this morning or the gossip around town that you are feeding into, or maybe that, 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 little, that little jab that you gave to that person that maybe gets on your nerves every once in a while that you felt so good for being able to say. God sees those things and he mourns over them. You know, King David had a son named Absalom who was, he was a wayward child and who actually wanted to snatch the kingdom away from his father. And he ends up growing in his popularity and he is so successful that he is actually able to force his father out of the capital city and run for his life away from Absalom. David's men happen to know the area better, and the battle and the war ends up in David's favor. 
But in all of this battle, the king had one command above them all, that if you catch my son Absalom, do not harm him. Well, it turns out that Absalom is actually killed by one of David's right-hand men. And in 2 Samuel 18, we read of the news that David receives of his son being killed. Now, keep in mind, this is a son who wanted to kill him and take his kingdom. In 2 Samuel 18, we read of David, after hearing the news, going up to his chamber over the gate, and the text says that he wept. Absalom, my son, my son Absalom. When you read it, you can sense his heart breaking to his core over the death of his son. Friends, many of us are spiritually dying every day. Maybe not in the big sins as we think, but in the thousands of teeny, tiny, seemingly harmless sins. And God grieves over our sin more than David did when he leaned over the gate. You see, God loves us far more than anyone else ever could and far more than we could ever love someone else. And so when he sees these things, he is shaken to the core. If we are Christians, we should desire to get to the heart of God and we should pray that God would help us see things the way that He does. So the question that would be appropriate in light of a passage like this, in light of God's grief, would be, does your sin grieve you? Are you heartbroken over these things? You know, in in reflecting on this over the last week, just a wave of not really guilt, but sadness of who I am and and things that, that are in my past just came over me. And it seems like when like when we can get to that level, and not that I'm even at that level yet, we can get to the heart of God. When we can feel the way He does. This passage is interesting in the fact that it highlights so many aspects of God's character. God is loving. He is His heavenly Father who is legitimately grieving over our sin, patiently enduring with us. But God is also a just judge whose patience one day will wear thin. There will come a day in which God is going to close the window of opportunity to turn the corner. And that leads us to our next point. And that is that we need to agree with God's assessment. Agree with God's assessment. If God is good, He is is good not only in His compassion, but also in His justice. 
We ought to praise God that He is a vindicator. We ought to praise God that although some things happen in our world today that people get away with, or it seems like there's no justice, there's coming a day in which He is going to finally deal with it. And that is a great thought and a great promise that we have. We ought to glory in that. But there is this internal sense of justice, and it points to the goodness in His justice. But for some reason, we tend to have a a tendency to either believe that God doesn't see our faults or our wrongs, or on the other side, maybe He understands and He sees those things, but because He's good, He actually knows our situation and is okay with the things that we're thinking and okay with the things that we are, are doing. And so, we want Him to punish murderers. We want him to punish thieves and and rapists. We want to see that justice. But when he judges my sin, well, all of a sudden it's meddling. And it's not very loving. You know, Edward Snowden, uh, many of you know that name. He was a government contractor who was entrusted with some of the most secret information pertaining to digital data collection uh, from the National Security Agency on American citizens. And a number of years ago, he was, accredi- he was credited to being uh, this whistleblower informing the public of the massive amounts of data that the government has on every single one of us. The NSA knows every search we make every website that we visit, every call that you make, every text that you send. And it's not fair to say this information is only exclusive to NSA. Uh, In fact, if you do some digging, you'll find out that Google and Facebook actually probably know more about you than the NSA does. And though uh, you probably already know this, no doubt with me talking about it probably makes you uncomfortable. And it should. It should make you uncomfortable that they know all these things. And, and, but the thing is that though we're uncomfortable with a government and private entities knowing all this information about us, we forget that the Lord knows far more about us than our digital private life. He not only knows every single search we've ever done, He not only knows every website that we've ever gone to, every text message we've sent, every person we've called, but He knows every word we've said, every careless thought we've ever had, every action that we have thought was so secret. God's got it all in His mind. And He's not trying to target market you so that he can get your business. He has this information as mounting evidence against us for one day. That should make us far more uncomfortable than the NSA or Facebook or Google or Amazon, whoever it is. Now, two interesting things are happening in regards to this. Look in verse 3. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever. For he is flesh, his days shall be 120 years. Now, um, looking at this, it doesn't appear to me that he's necessarily putting a cap on human years, although that sort of seems to be what's happening, because when you look in the genealogies, the years of their lives are continuing to dwindle down a bit here. But I think what, what more so was going on here is that he is uh, putting a time limit on his patience, 
and he is leading up to this judgment that we are going to see next week. God is putting a time limit on this massive flood that is going to come. The literal reading of this is that my spirit shall not contend with man. So he is saying here that the thoughts, the actions, and the behaviors of the people leading up to God, flooding the earth, and wiping out humanity. And God is patient with us. You see, you and I struggle with all sorts of things. We have, we have temptations that, that come to us every single day, but there's coming a day when Christ is coming back. We have no idea when it's going to be. Jesus had no idea. Only God the Father knows. There's no countdown. There's no surprise. Every so often you'll see on the news or wherever on a website of some wacko group that thinks that they have got it solved and they sell all their possessions. And, and uh, interestingly enough, they sell it all to the leader. And uh, they go picketing on streets uh, telling everybody that the end of the world is coming, and lo and behold, we're here today, and their lives are ruined because they have nothing. That they've given everything up for that. We need to be ready for the element of surprise. And we're going to find out how to be ready here in the next point, but for now, let's move on to the second thing that we see about His judgment here in verse 7, that God's judgment is total. Verse 7 says, the Lord, So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Notice that it says humans and animals. And, you know, the question sort of is, what did the animals do? They didn't do anything here. They're not, they don't have... They're not judged for their morality. They're, they're, they're creatures of instinct. The unfortunate reality is that the curse of Adam has effects that go into all of creation. It points to the idea that our sin affects everything. The weather, the trees, the animals. And notice that it says, I will blot out man. The English is a little interesting here because the term is literally, I will wash them away. That gives a whole new spin on what they're talking about here. He is preparing to open the floodgates. It's this image of someone who is washing dishes. And when you're washing dishes, you know, you, you dunk it in the soapy water and then you rinse it off, but it doesn't just go there. The term there uh, refers also to finishing the job. It's like taking that towel and wiping the dish clean. And that's what God is saying here, is that I will blot them out, I will wash them out, and I will wipe them away as if it were suppers, dishes. He, his promise is that his judgment will be total. Acts 17, 31 says, because God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And, and, and here he's not pointing that he's just randomly going to pick and choose who he's going to save. That person, that person, that person, that person blindly for no reason at all, there aren't exceptions here. He will judge the entire world, and he will do so according to his own standards. You know, a few years back, there was an interesting story 
um, in, the, uh, in the Minneapolis Star Tribune and, and CARE 11 and all the, uh, the local stations about a Minneapolis man named Michael Karkos. He was known as a great neighbor, uh, a loving family man. He was known for being one who was intimately involved in the community in, in many different aspects. But because of the Freedom of Information Act, excuse me, because of the Freedom of Information Act, some information had come out um, alleging that this man who had lived in Minneapolis for over 50 years in the community was actually one of the Ukrainian leaders who was responsible uh, for uh, being in the Third Reich, the Nazi regime. And not only was he a member of the Third Reich, but he was also one of the leaders who led the charge of the Warsaw Ghetto murders. And the uprising, because there was an uprising of Jews in, in, in Warsaw. And though he lived in Minneapolis neighborhood, you know, essentially peacefully and, and was known for being a good neighbor, since his naturalization in 1959, Jews and other area uh, neighbors had protested um, and were calling for his extradition to Europe to face war crimes that happened way back in the 1940s. And it appears that his past life, his past sin, had finally caught up to him. In the same way, God has appointed a day in which he will judge us. It doesn't matter if we've done a million great things, if we've cleaned up our act and all those nasty things are in our past, whether it be 60 or 80 years ago, our thoughts, our actions, and our words will catch up to us, will be opened up in God's book, will be judged not by a war tribunal, but by one who is the judge, jury, and the sentencer all in one. And only those who are pure and perfect will escape this. And then the question lines up, then who then can be saved? How do we escape this? There's only one way to be brought through this safely, and that's our last point today. And that is to take God's offer of acquittal. Take God's offer of being acquitted. Look in verse 8. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This text, especially in verse, no, excuse me, especially in verse 5, points to a universal wickedness. Verse 7 points to a universal judgment. But now look again at verse 8. Noah found favor in the eyes of God. Notice the passivity here. Noah found favor with God. Notice it doesn't say Noah earned favor with God. It doesn't say that Noah was such a great person that God all of a sudden said, whoa, hold on a second here. I need to check out this guy over here named Noah. It says that Noah found favor with something he had no control over. He just found it. Yes, verse 9 says that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. He walked with God. But why then was Noah blameless? How did Noah walk with God? 
it was because God had shown him favor. Because of God, Noah walked with him. Because of God, Noah was blameless. It was all God's grace. For those of you here that are, that are married, you can understand the illustration of maybe when you met your spouse. I know it in, in, in my uh, situation, um, I don't think that there was anything that I could have done to gain Julie's favor. Uh, I'm really not that charming. I'm really not that great looking. And I was dirt poor when we met. Nothing I could have done. I couldn't have, I could have, I couldn't have bought her the world. I was, I was poor. And it's the same with our children. You know that our children don't earn our love. They just have our love because they are our children. It's grace. And God shows his favor by sending Jesus to live this perfect life, to die on our behalf, and to be raised from the dead so that we can have ultimate victory over sin and over death. God shows us grace by opening our eyes. He opens our hearts. If we look in, in Acts 16, uh, Paul and there's this guy named Silas, and they, they, they meet this girl named Lydia, and they, they show her the gospel, and they tell her these things. And uh, the text says in Acts 16 that God opened her heart to understand the things that they had talked about. She didn't open up her heart. God opened up her heart. This isn't an intellectual exercise. God opened her heart to receive him, and it's the same with you and me. Ephesians chapter 2 writes the same idea, that we were dead in our sins and trespasses in which we once walked. Now, I don't know about you, but dead people can't resuscitate themselves. Only God can do that. He gives us a new nature by which we can trust and believe in him. And when we believe, when we trust in Christ, God no longer looks at us in our sin and our unrighteousness. He looks at us in the same way that he looks at Christ. Through faith, Jesus' righteousness, his goodness, his flawlessness, his moral perfection is given to us. And our sin is given to him. There are many harsh realities of life. We are grieved by so many things. Grieved by sickness and by death and broken relationships and and financial ruin. Marriages that are on the rocks, broken families, all of these things. The right to mourn and grieve over. But oftentimes, we only grieve if we even grieve at all, over those surface-level things and not the deep root of them, our sin. God's heart is broken over these things that we experience. He is broken over the wayward child. He is broken over the death of a loved one. He is broken over friendships that suddenly end. He is broken over those harsh things that we said or that we did in the heat of passion. He is broken by the ways that we treat other people. 
He is broken by those things that we think and do and say in private. He sees the root cause. His heart is broken over our sin. But he isn't passive. He's going to deal with it, and indeed he has. He will either deal with it in our judgment to be apart from him for eternity, or he has put it on Jesus Christ. There's no sin that falls through the cracks. It's either us or Jesus. Jesus will take the brunt of it. Jesus is the way out. Jesus is the card of exoneration. Jesus is the acquittal. Jesus not only gives you the not guilty verdict, but he puts the innocent verdict on you and he fills your card with righteousness. This is given to you by God's grace through faith. Another word for that is trust. God is grieved, but he is not in despair. His grief leads him to compassion and saving action. Rescue has come. Will you receive that rescue in the person of Jesus? Father in heaven, we want to thank you for your word here today in Genesis 6. Words that we often just get tripped up in the trivial details of. But Lord, help us to center on the fact that you are deeply concerned about us. Your heart is pointed in our direction. You know our every thought. You know our every intention. But Lord, even in your grief, you've sent help. And so, Father, this morning, would you help us to take hold of that help? Would you help us to have faith in Jesus Christ, that our lives would be changed because of him, that we would live joyfully and in freedom that comes in knowing him, that our sins and our uh, regrets and our shame and our guilt can all be gone. Help us to do that this morning, Lord, through faith in Jesus. Amen. Well, today,